Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is February 9th, 2023, and I am delighted to be here with Jihad Abu Salim, who is a 2022 Palestinian non-resident fellow at FMEP. Jihad is also the Education and Policy Coordinator of the Palestine Activism Program at the American Friends Service Committee, and he is completing his PhD in the History and Hebrew History and Hebrew and Judaic Studies Joint Program at New York University. Jihad, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me again, Sarah. I appreciate it. It's good to have you again. So listeners to this podcast know that we love hosting you, Jihad, on many topics, um, including on your powerful insights into current events. You recently wrote about what's happening right now in a new essay that you entitled, The West Bank is on the Brink of Collapse. That's what I wanna talk to you about today. I'm gonna put a link to your article in the show notes. Um, We are calling this conversation, Dispatches from the Near Future. So let's, let's start in the near future. Let's start with your prediction. So you wrote in your article, I'm gonna quote this piece to you. You wrote, the collapse of the West Bank and with it, the loss of countless lives and communities is now not a question of if, but when. In its aftermath, the world will ask what could have been done to prevent this tragedy. Palestinians will reply, we warned you. Tell us about that. Uh, of course, um... When I wrote this article, and it's based on a uh, on a Twitter thread uh, that I uh, tweeted right after the Israeli raid on the uh, city of Jenin uh, on January twenty sixth, I think. Um, uh, when I wrote it, um, it was part of. Uh, you know, a process of thinking and reflection about uh, the events that have been unfolding in the West Bank, especially in the past uh, months. Uh, And for those who follow developments on the ground, uh, 2022 was an interesting year in the West Bank, because uh, during that year, we started to see um, uh, many changes happening um, on the ground in terms of um, how different Palestinian communities, especially in places like Jenin and Nablus, um, are reverting to the uh, path of armed struggle, uh, and we have seen the emergence of uh, multiple groups, such as the Lions Den uh, and the Janine Brigade. And CNN actually did a report on the Janine Brigade. They interview some of the fighters. We talked to them um, about their emergence and what is it that they hope to achieve or want to do in the near future. And of course, we've seen uh, escalating violence 
by the Israeli state, um, by its military and uh, intelligence apparatus, and by uh, the settlers, those who follow what's happening in the South Hebron Hills, Masafar uh, Yatta, in other parts of the West Bank, uh, would definitely know that there has been uh, this escalation. And of course, you know, all these uh, things aren't new in their nature, but rather uh, they are uh, phenomena that uh, are, you know, uh, expanding and increasing in their scale and in their intensity. Um, and all of this has been happening in uh, a context of political deadlock. And I think we've talked about this before and, and many have been talking about this before. There is no political horizon for uh, you know, uh, a diplomatic solution, uh, the framework, the two-state framework, the peace process, all of these things um, have been uh, really uh, halted. There is no progress on the diplomatic front, even though uh, the Biden administration, uh, you know, tries to show that it is interested in in promoting this approach. But uh, the the administration has done nothing to uh, revive the political process, and and as the political process dies. Um, we've also witnessed the uh, return of Netanyahu and his coalition, this time more right-wing, uh, more, you know, uh, uh, fascist, <laughs> and more uh, interested in not only uh, escalating violence against Palestinian communities, but also pushing for uh, fundamental changes uh, within the Israeli system itself. Uh, you know, the, when it comes to the judicial system uh, uh, and of course, you know, appointing all these right-wing activists like Itamar Ben-Gvir and Smutrish and uh, in very important positions. So this is the general atmosphere and of course, uh, people talk about this, and, and there are plenty of pieces that offer analysis and, and perspective, different perspectives about it. But, and I, I will end with, with this part here. Uh, in the middle of all of this, there is the Palestinian population in the West Bank. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have, whose experience in the past 15 years, 16 years, uh, or even longer than that, since the end of the Second Intifada, and since the end of the 2000, and, uh, or since, since 2006, the year when the Palestinian elections happened, and the following year, 2007, when the Palestinian political division happened, uh, and Gaza became under Hamas's rule, and the West Bank uh, under the Palestinian Authority, led by Mahmoud Abbas's rule. Uh, people in the West Bank since these two important moments have been living uh, under the rule of the PA uh, according to a very uh, straightforward formula. 
that the PA uh, in the West Bank has uh, received, is viewed by the international community as a legitimate authority. Uh, it receives donor support. Uh, it works with Israel on uh, achieving security coordination, on collaborating on security and civilian affairs and matters, uh, crossings and so on and so forth. It, uh, and most importantly, it, it commits itself, the Palestinian Authority, to a proactive approach of curbing any form of Palestinian armed uh, resistance in the West Bank. And, uh, and the Palestinian Authority committed itself to cracking down on uh, different, on its opposition uh, and those who also, you know, oppose its project, oppose its vision, oppose uh, its vision for peace. And uh, you know they put people in prison, they kill activists, they arrest them. And they tell the Palestinian public, uh, we're doing all of this because eventually the political process that the Palestinian Authority is committed to achieve is going to succeed and it's going to work out again. And the international community eventually will do something about the occupation. And eventually the Palestinian Authority will pursue uh, steps such as going to the International Criminal Court or you know, going to the UN or any of these things. But it's already 2023 and none of these things have happened. And as I mentioned, the political process has been dead for a very long time. Uh, and there is a new generation of Palestinians in the West Bank who are asking the important questions. Um, until when are we going to live like that? works and permits and work permits and you know economic incentives they could contain uh, the political reality in a given context for a while but they don't they don't necessarily uh, resolve the pressing questions of when are we going to be free when are we going to be independent what are we what will happen to the settlements when are they going to when will israel stop building legal settlements are we ever going to have a state? Um, how many generations are going to still pass through checkpoints? Are we going to have national rights, independence? And there are no answers for these questions. And, that's, has, and this has been very frustrating for Palestinians in the West Bank uh, because the, 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 the logic that I mentioned earlier about you know, the, the formula, according to which they lived in the West Bank since the end of the Second Intifada and since the Palestinian division cannot be sold anymore. So I think this is the general like context and what happened in Jenin and uh, I think the events that followed and the events that we are going to see in the coming months, uh, especially during Ramadan, which will overlap with the holiday of Passover, um, I think will be further indications of how complicated the reality has become. Thank you for that overview. Uh, that was a big, a big overview. And I, um, I want to, for one second, go back to a little bit of, of where you started just to say um, to our listeners that we have been covering uh, these events as, as, as Jihad said, this is an escalation, but it's not new. Um, 
and I want to, to point to two things. One is that we actually did a, a my colleague, Kristen McCarthy, did a, a podcast yesterday with Ziv Stahl, the executive director of uh, Yeshdin, an Israeli human rights organization that um, monitors, among other things, settler violence in the West Bank. And uh, that is a was a conversation focused on the increase, the escalation of uh, violence against Palestinians in the West Bank by um, Jewish settlers, state state backed Jewish Jewish settlers. Um, that's one piece. And the other jihad also talked about the South Hebron Hills and um, listeners to this podcast know that we have been focusing a lot on the South Hebron Hills and the um, the slow dispossession, the the slow ethnic cleansing of that area. Um, the, the, the green lighting of the expulsion of more than a thousand Palestinians from their homes in that area, green, green lit by the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, so we have a lot of resources on these topics, which we have been following. And I wanna encourage all of our listeners to really dig in and, and go deeper. And, and Jihad coming back to what you just said, uh, thank you for, for presenting this to us as a, as a full context, as a full picture, with the um, the political framework also of the deal that Palestinians made with the PA initially, almost amazing, amazingly enough, almost 20 years ago um, in 2006. Uh, and the the failure of this of this deal, of this exchange to to deliver. Um, something else that you wrote in your most recent piece, uh, I wanted to ask you to speak more about you. You said, and I'm and I'm quoting quoting you to you again. Um, At its core, the Palestinian struggle is centered on resisting the violation of their individual and collective dignity. Something no amount of aid, incentives, or superficial development can assuage, and something Israel's proponents appear not to understand. Will you un unpack that for us? Of course, and uh, I grew up in Gaza in the late 90s and early 2000s, and uh, I witnessed a process that took place in Gaza similar to the process that unfolded in the West Bank following the 2007 Palestinian political division and the exclusion of Gaza from the, uh, the Palestinian Authority. Uh, project um, and especially in the late 90s Gaza was seemingly thriving it was a seemingly thriving place people were working uh, there were there was an airport that only opened for a few months before it was bombed in the second intifada but still uh, uh, you know there, there was a building boom uh, Palestinian businessmen uh, and capitalists were thriving, and uh, under you know the the rule of of the PA. And at the end of the day, this reality could not continue uh, because what the Second Intifada showed. Um, Second Intifada exactly showed what. What happens in, in, in contexts where um, political and diplomatic processes that are meant to resolve 
uh, a situation like the one that we have between the river and the sea and achieve uh, some sort of uh, uh, resolution if they don't if these if, if these diplomatic and political processes do not address the the fundamental issues and if they're not happening in a in a context where um, in a context of accountability and in a context of um, uh, real pressure on everyone, including Israel, to uh, honor its commitments, assuming that the, the process, the processes themselves were uh, were rooted in uh, in a sound analysis. And this is, of course, you know, something that I find arguable, and I can talk about this later. Um, so things fell apart because of that, and then. Leading up to you know the what happened two thousand six and two thousand seven. Unfortunately, following two thousand and seven, the Palestinian Authority and the international community followed the same exact uh, path in the West Bank. Uh, the, there was heavy focus on restructuring the security forces, and. Uh, we saw that during the government of Prime Minister Salam Fayyad, uh, the U.S. sent General Dayton, who, by the way, has you know, given a lecture. I think it's available on YouTube about what the process of restructuring the Palestinian security forces looked like and what kind of efforts uh, different international players have put into changing the reality of the security forces from the Arafat era into the you know, what we now call the Abbas phase. Um, and of course, you know, the, the economy in the West Bank was improving and there were uh, and millions and millions of dollars were poured into, you know, uh, many projects, some of which benefit, benefited communities, uh, you know, roads and, and infrastructure. And of course, you know, because uh, this economic improvement happened in a context where, you know, under occupation, people live under occupation. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a consumer economy, uh, not heavily productive, uh, people moving from the villages to the cities uh, and abandoning their, you know, traditional uh, farmer slash peasant lifestyles uh, to work for uh, an inflated public sector, uh, an inflated security uh, sector. Uh, we're talking about more than sixty thousand members of the secure of security forces in the West Bank, um, and of course a private sector that relies heavily on those people getting their salaries, and and uh, and a banking sector that relies heavily on those people taking loans and mortgages and so uh, this has been basically the economic reality in in the west bank um, and of course there are thousands of people who work in israel now this is all arguably okay people you know need to work and make money and uh, buy apartments and cars and feed their families uh, 
but that doesn't compensate for political rights. And uh, deploying the security forces uh, to instill fear into the hearts uh, and minds of the PAs and Israel's opposition does not also compensate for political rights. And all of these approaches to contain the West Bank, to rehabilitate the West Bank, to pacify the West Bank, did not really end the, the interest and the desire amongst millions of Palestinians there to, uh, to see themselves free and independent like other Palestinians wished also to see themselves. And that's why, uh, you know, people who speak of the reality in the West Bank as, uh, as this beautiful paradise compared to gloomy Gaza, because the West Bank, you know, has Palestinian leaders who acquiesce and who, you know, follow the lead of the international community and say yes to the United States on some aspects and conduct security coordination with the Israelis. Uh, they try to market it as an example of how Palestinian communities thrive, but also Palestinians aren't naive. They see that the, the, there's, there's no horizon for, for any political process uh, to achieve this, to achieve the declared you know, outcomes, uh, two states, East Jerusalem as the capital. And they see that there is no partner in Israel too, because Israeli officials and politicians have made it uh, clear that they're not interested in, uh, in a two-state solution. They're not interested in Palestinian statehood. They're not interested in negotiating with the Palestinians. And no matter what the Palestinian, Palestinians do, there are always excuses for why not to, to sit and negotiate with them. And they proactively express their desire to further colonize the West Bank and annex it. Uh, and increase the numbers of settlers there. So again, in face of this context, within this context and in face of this reality, uh, Palestinians, it always comes down to this moment of truth. And people ask collectively, uh, where are we headed? How did this happen? And what's going to happen to us? And, and this is an individual concern and a collective concern as well. And I hope I hope I answered your question because again, it always it always goes back to this general context and and, and the political framework that exists. Um, thank you. It, the general context and the political framework. And you started off by saying that um, that you, perhaps you would comment on the assumptions behind the the political frameworks or the political framing from uh, from around 2006. And I, I, I wanted to ask you actually to comment on that, but perhaps uh, in, in light of talking to us about the US role, um, the US role and the international community's role uh, specifically, historically and, and today and looking forward. 
Uh, so regarding the role of the US, and this has been raised during the recent visit of Secretary of State Blinken to the region. Uh, and one of the declared goals of his visit uh, was to de-escalate the, uh, the situation, especially in light of what happened in Jenin and, uh, and then in Jerusalem. And I failed to see how this approach would succeed because the U.S. has plenty of leverage to use vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli government, but it does not use its leverage. It doesn't uh, pressure the Israeli government, um, doesn't threaten to cut its aid. In fact, it, uh, we've seen nothing but further empowerment of Israel, especially by the Biden administration. Um, and this is a government that is not only bad on Palestinian issues, it's a government that also, you know, many Israelis consider it uh, as a government that has a, a harmful social agenda. Uh, and I, and for like a democratic administration that uh, claims to care about many of uh, uh, of these social issues that relate to rights of minorities and so on and, uh, and so forth, um, to you know just remain silent uh, uh, regarding this government. Uh, I mean, I remember in 2006 when the Palestinian Legislative Council elections happened and Palestinians elected uh, Hamas and then the international community rushed to say that Palestinians made the wrong electoral decision. And we have been uh, collectively punished since 2006 because of a single parliamentary elections. It's been almost, you know, like 20 years. And, you know, generations of Palestinians have been paying the price for entering a democratic process and for electing whoever they, they chose to elect. Uh, yet when Israelis, you know, uh, send a coalition like that of Netanyahu's to power, uh, not only that the international community reiterates its, its commitments to preserve the status quo and to support Israel, um, Israel is also about to receive another uh, advantage from the U.S. Uh, through the visa, visa waiver program if it, if it uh, gets approved this year. Um, a visa waiver program that might and will normalize many of the apartheid policies because you know there will be u.s citizens who will be excluded from uh, entering uh, the west bank or gaza or landing in israeli airports based on their ethnicity so not only does the u.s continue to provide its unconditional support for the israeli government uh, it is highly possible that this administration might grant Israel something that Israel couldn't achieve during the Bush administration and during the Trump administration, which is again, the visa waiver program. So, you know, to, to expect anything from, from, the, from the US government at this point would be uh, unrealistic. And, uh, and this again, you know, always brings us back to the most important uh, issue at hand, especially in the U.S. 
people need to continue to advocate and you know uh, and push their elected officials and and their government to change its approach because they have the the US holds the most important leverage and it's not using it Thanks, Jihad. And um, on the visa waiver, waiver program, Ambassador Nides has uh, said that this is one of his top priorities is, is uh, implementing, passing and implementing the, the visa waiver program. Um, so thank you for that about, about the U.S. I wanted to ask you if you wanted to um, add anything in, your, in, in explaining to us the context of, of what's happening now about what's going on in, in uh, surrounding Arab states. And um, when you and I talked about having this recording this conversation, we actually talked a little bit about about Egypt and the economic crisis there. And of course, in the last few days, there's been this absolutely horrifying earthquake uh, and the aftermath of mm-hmm. tens of tens of thousands of people uh, who lost their lives and and way more who are injured and and lost their homes in uh, in Turkey and, and Syria. So give us just a, a brief word, please, about um, what's happening around the West Bank, outside of the West Bank and outside of, of, uh, of Israel-Palestine broadly. Of course. I mean, I'm personally concerned about Ramadan, uh, which uh, comes in late March and continues until uh, end of April. And in the first two weeks of April, the holy month of Ramadan will again overlap with the Jewish holiday of Passover. And there there were times in Palestine's history uh, where uh, not only religious holidays would overlap, but, you know, uh, Palestinian Muslims and Christians would celebrate, you know, the Prophet Moses in their annual uh, Prophet Moses festival or Mawsim and Nabi Musa. And and it's unfortunate to think that, you know, these these, uh, occasions uh, are now perceived as moments of potential deterioration um, and bloodshed and and, and as catalysts for uh, for such deterioration. And so this is an important thing to keep in mind. And I hope, you know, I hope, I hope nothing happens, but, you know, uh, we have Itamar bin Gvir, who is very uh, focused on uh, entering the Aqsa compound and, and taking settlers there. Um, so we'll see how this how this will unfold during Ramadan uh, with Palestinian worshippers uh, basically, you know, needing to be in that space to pray and, uh, and read Quran and, and just do like everything that Muslims do during Ramadan. So this is an important thing to keep in mind. Now, in terms of... Uh, the the region uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was interviewed by CNN lately, and he 
uh, basically bragged about uh, his uh, his success in uh, passing the Palestinians and achieving peace agreements with uh, with Arab countries, um, the Abraham Accords, which we talked about before. And it's interesting that he says that because I think he's he continues to delude himself and delude the Israeli public and his supporters that these security and surveillance arrangements uh, are considered peace agreements by by, uh, by Netanyahu and, and his supporters. Uh, while at the same time, you know, people in Jordan and Egypt uh, with close proximity to uh, Palestine and Israel, you know, uh, on the level of people-to-people -people peace, no progress has been made even after, you know, decades since the Camp David Accord and after decades since the uh, Israel signed a peace agreement with Jordan. And I think, you know, this, this narrative that Israel has achieved, uh, you know, more peace agreements with Arab nations is something that I think no reasonable person should buy. Uh, and it's hard to measure these things, but we know that during May 2021, there were protests in Jordan, uh, you know, supporting the Palestinian unity uprising. And after what happened in Jenin, uh, Egyptians, you know, exploded on social media with support for Palestinians and for support for um, Palestinians to take whatever measures to push against the Israeli occupation. And these, these indications uh, show that even in surrounding countries, this, this sentiment of opposing the occupation and supporting the Palestinian people hasn't gone away yet and hasn't vanished. Uh, and even though sometimes, or even most of the time, governments are not necessarily representative of these sentiments, but they exist. Uh, so I think, you know, this is just to be cautious uh, when it comes to this narrative of Israel achieving further peace with, with the Arab nations without the Palestinians. Uh, so I think I'm not sure how the, the economic and social and crises and now, which will worsen due to these catastrophes, you know, very tragic what happened in Turkey and Syria. Uh, I'm not sure how these fact, how these things will factor into the reality in between the river and the sea. Um, but you know, we know that the support for Palestinians is still very powerful in the Arab world especially you know when it comes to the the general populations and if things fall apart uh, in between the river and the sea at any point 
who knows how this support might translate, what this support might translate into. Um, but I, again, I think Netanyahu is deluding himself, deluding his base. Um, and uh, no one should buy the, the lie that these security and military and surveillance arrangements are peace agreements. Great, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights with us today. I, I want to speak to you again soon um, to check in about, uh, again, about how things are developing and, uh, and, and hopefully we can um, continue to sink into um, this question of, of uh, you talked about how Palestinians are asking themselves, how did we get here and, and what's possible moving forward? And uh, I wanna keep talking to you about those, those questions exactly. Um, but thank you so much for today. And, and, thank, and I wanna thank all of our listeners. Also, thank you for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Um, please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org. Uh, for resources relating to this podcast, for the, the links, links to the articles and the other podcasts that we talked about, and for a lot of other rich content um, relating to Palestine and to Israel, to this area between the river and the sea. Thank you so much. Please make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast so you stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Uh, and you can also watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one, on YouTube. Um, and with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin signing off until the next.